a problem that I've seen, Helene, in the world of banking and financials overall is that a lot of banks really feel as if relationship is their superpower, but they don't realize every bank feels relationship is their superpower. When the truth of it is, the majority of them are really more transactional. Welcome to Banking On Air, the official Vacuum Labs podcast. I'm Helene Panzerino, and today I'm joined by Donald Hawkins, who I feel like I can't do you justice. I'm going to say that you're a co-founder of 10th, and we'll talk about that in more detail. But you're also a founder or co-founder of Griffin Technologies. So you really are an entrepreneur in the fintech space. And today we're going to delve a bit deeper into, I really want to explore partnerships, fintech partnerships, fintech banking partnerships. But before we get into any of that, I'm just on the edge of my seat just to find out more about 10th, because this is a moment in history. This is something momentous. Yes, it's a digital bank, but it's a digital bank that is breaking boundaries, breaking down walls and using education to change the financial life for some people. So Donald, I will welcome you onto the stage and we'll find out more about you and about 10th and Griffin. Awesome. Helene, thank you so much for having me. Super excited about being here. Uh, such a fan uh, of you and, and what you're building. And uh, yeah, excited to just chat, talk about all things fintech and things going on in our crazy world. I know you've been through one of the accelerators, the ICBA accelerator. You've been through other accelerators. We'll find out more about that. So if anybody knows what it's like to come in from the tech perspective in that way and to want to work, partner, collaborate for genuine commercial engagement with other fintechs and with the banking community, you will. But before we get to that and what happened with Griffin, can we please talk about 10th? Yeah, for sure. Quick backstory. I grew up in a small little town in South Georgia, grew up with country values and definitely experienced over my lifetime what it is like to be a minority and specifically black in America. I was raised in a middle-class household. My mom and dad worked their butts off. My grandparents worked their butts off. And my sisters and I were placed in a really good situation. And I had a decision to make as an entrepreneur to take the blessings that I'd received and keep my head down and build or to do what I could to help give back. And it just felt like the right thing to do through venture. So everything that I've really been involved in has always found a way to interact with the masses. With Griffin Technologies, we developed that company to help community banks and credit unions gain access to more digital insights and contextual insights from customers. Because we know that the new generation doesn't really go to banks as much as uh, older generations have. So how do banks somehow find a way to catch up to understand what their customers want and need if they don't get that face-to-face relationship. So working through those institutions, we saw a path to help communities as well. So March 25th, George Floyd was murdered here in the United States, and it attacked me a little bit of a different way this go around. We've had police brutality and things happen before, but this time in my life was a little bit different. Being in my mid-30s, having a child on the way at the time. I now have a son, second child, who was born August 26th. Congratulations. Thank you, big boy. He's a bruiser. And I was thinking about the plight of Black America in relation to all the different things that we fight generation after generation. And when you really start pulling back all the layers on education reform, real estate, redlining, police brutality, underemployment, Everything that we fight in this country, aside from the racist things that are behind it, they point to money. And as a community, Black America has systemically been removed from really learning money and how it works. 
And as a result, kind of tough to be free in a country when the people who hold the purse strings have also been your oppressors as well. So I went on a deep dive, just researching any and everything that I could, that I felt could be an impactful driven feature to help Black America somehow to work its way towards financial literacy and understanding of money. And I wasn't really happy with any of the options that I saw. I saw a lot of cards, tons of cards out there, but we all have our unique features. But what Black America specifically needs is wealth building. What can we automate? What can we build to help users truly own the wealth building process for their needs? And Helene, I have an update for you. We actually changed our name. Oh my gosh. Hot off the press. We changed our name. This is sizzling. Sizzling. Hot news (laughs) right here, right now. So yeah, so the new name that we've changed to is actually Boulevard. Boulevard was was something that really just resonated uh, with us. We had a lot of conversations internally about a name that either would have some historical references or context uh, or that would allude to something or someone else. And uh, we decided that we wanted to forge a new path. History is history, but we want to create our own history. And when you think about the word Boulevard, for most people, especially here in the States, Boulevard typically is synonymous with like commerce is normally where the the businesses are and where people congregate. Not so much nowadays with COVID-19, but in general terms. But definition of Boulevard is also a wide street, meaning that, that there's more than enough room for everyone to win. And I think that's something that we can learn just around the world. A lot of the systemic racism that is applied across multiple countries and multiple people and multiple communities. There is enough room for everyone to win. Plenty of room. Yeah, we're really excited about that and lots of good things happening on that front. In context, and people will be listening to this at various times as well, we are on the cusp of something very momentous. Just before we started this podcast, I had a news flash come in saying that Kamala Harris was now making history and she was the VP elect. And then we checked all our newscasts to see if that was right. And and hopefully by the time we finish recording, we will know that history has been made. We'll see. (laughs) There is in America just permeated around the world. There is a movement, there is a change, and we're talking about a specific community. But you and I both have had many conversations about the fact that there are many communities that are underserved or misserved in the way that financial services is delivered to them. It doesn't speak to them, they haven't been consulted, and it doesn't help them actually, mostly in terms of wealth uh, creation and wealth generation. And if ever we were aware of the fact that we don't have enough of that, everybody. I think the pandemic has let us see that nations are building up mounting debts. Pension funds are not going to be there when we need them mostly. And all of us are in jobs, out of jobs, furloughed, not furloughed, on a package or otherwise. So I think the whole concept around education and wealth creation has come to the fore, not for the best reasons, obviously, but it has come to the fore. I have to also ask you, Donald, did you wake up one day and think, I already have one business. I'm going to put an extra load on and I'm going to start this other business. And we'll talk about your co-founders and how you may have worked in collaboration with other people. But was it the passion that drove you to say, I have to do this and I'm going to do these two together? Or is there a crack team behind both of these? No. So it was a super thought provoking, soul searching moment for me where I respect the hell out of my team. I respect the hell out of my investors and really appreciate them for the support and energy and effort that they pour into things that I get involved with. Anything that I touch that tries to help impact people, I have people behind me that respect it. This was something for me that I knew 
do was a once in a lifetime opportunity, which is a really bittersweet thing to even say, because I wish we didn't need to exist. Who wants to be forced to really get into something where you build something like this to help people that have been systemically oppressed? And I had conversations with each of my investors and said, hey, guys, here's where I'm at. Griffin is in a really good position. We set up strong distribution partners. And I think I need to have an at-bat with this feature. And every single one of my investors, from angels all the way to VCs, said, go for it. Every single one of them. And I'm super thankful to them for making that process easier for me to do it as well. What happened after that was super interesting. As a, a founder, we wear a gazillion hats. Mm -hmm. And while thinking about the development uh, of a neobank for Black America, it forced me to think about more delegation within Griffin. And as a result, Griffin is doing significantly better because I'm not as involved. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew yeah, that, true, that, yeah. that bringing on smart people <laughs> to handle different pieces of the business that are smarter than you would actually be better for the business? So it has been one of the more, more humorous things that I've experienced. Being forced to delegate has now created something beautiful in companies doing really well, uh, still helping a ton of community banks and credit unions. A lot of them have become friends at this point as well. And yeah, it was definitely a tough decision to make, but something that was pertinent and necessary. We're trying to change generations, right? That's our goal. People always say that, make sure you're not the smartest person in the room. Well, you've learned, this, you've learned that in, a, in double time. And also pull together teams during what is a really the chaos that we're in right now with the pandemic. And obviously with Black Lives Matter was happening before that. You managed to pull together a team. How difficult was that to find good co-founders to get the team together and get them working without fear, their own fear? Because let's face it, everybody is living in uncertain times right now, not just from the job perspective, but from the health perspective and everything else that's going on. What makes that interesting is I found that mission-driven companies tend to have an easier path to attract talent. With Griffin Technologies, it was really more so about the prospective challenge. And I had lots of great candidates that honestly weren't very motivated by community banks and credit unions, that they didn't really see earth-shattering, world-shattering technology that could be built for community banks and credit unions. But they're wrong because I don't think they quite understood the opportunity that was in front of them with the way community banks and credit unions work. Yeah. But I will say for the neobank side of things, it's been a blast. We consider ourselves uh, up until the next couple of weeks, pseudo stealthy, mm -hmm. right? Where we're out there, but not out there. But having conversations with people who have been noodling this concept and idea, man, I wish Black America and other minorities had these types of options for financial services. A lot of people have thought about it, but the way we work as entrepreneurs, we're the doers of the yeah. world. So that, that's something that's been neat. We've had a number of people come to us. We've had very cool conversations. Even when we let people know they're probably not the best fit, I've never had as many applicants come back to us and say, you know what? Bummer that I can't join the team, but if there's anything I can do to help, let me know. Pretty sure a lot of companies don't get that when you send the rejection email. So that part's been pretty cool as well. We're building something that we we want to be best in class, right? Not just a neobank specifically for Black America, just for the namesake. We want a, a very thought-provoking, effective, actionable tool that really helps our members uh, get what they need. And the cool thing about it is when we say we're building a neobank for Black America, we don't exclude anyone. 
all are welcome. Again, hence the name Boulevard. We just make sure a lot of our focus and energy is set up in such a way that we meet our specific members where we need to. Uh, a good example I gave somebody the other day, I was like, Tom, why don't you just do a neobank for all minorities? I'm like, there's so many different and unique needs. Black America, as an example, when compared to our Latin brothers and sisters, Latin Americans send a lot of money back home. And there are definitely a lot of gaps in the market to help them send money back and forth without crazy fees. Black America doesn't really have that as a need uh, of a service or feature that we need. And we hope that there are going to be other companies that continue to spring up that address those specific needs for their affinity groups as well. We're learning from some and, and we hope others get to learn from us too. It's interesting because you, you and I have had this conversation about communities very often and you mentioned it, how people didn't look to the community banks to see them as potential collaborators or potential customers, potential clients, because they didn't really understand the, the power that was behind them. Of course, during the, the first phase of the stimulus package going out during the pandemic, the majority of that, I think 93 billion of it, initially went out from the community banks and predominantly in the Midwest, more agile, more able to react more quickly to get their people working from home more easily. But the one thing they also had was trust in a relationship. The whole concept behind community, we're talking about another community and if, or a community of affinity. That idea behind community, do you think also in this period where we can't have physical contact, we can't go see our bank branch manager or go see each other, the, the relationships and the history that people have as being built in a community, be that a physical one or of, of affinity, is going to be one of the secret sauce that's going to be the, the, the silver bullet in terms of attracting and retaining customers as well? I would say yes and no, Helene. We're in a really unique time for banks, right? Where decades ago, you could shake someone's hand in the bank and deal was done. And bankers truly cared about taking care of every individual customer because that customer wasn't their only customer. So was that person's aunt, their cousin, their grandmother, brother, sister. And that's the way banks operated. But what's happened is that we have a generation of people, millennials, like we're that weird influx generation where those of us that are in our mid thirties, like me, we remember those relationships. But those that are in our mid-20s barely know how to balance a checkbook, probably don't even know what a checkbook is, and don't really have a relationship with a banker. So bankers are now in this position where they also have now started hiring people that are millennials and that are on both sides of that spectrum as well. And they're trying to figure out how do we regain the relationship, right? Because many banks have lost it. If you look at most banks, the number one metric I have them pay attention to is the average age of your banking customer. If that number is high, you're in trouble. You want that number to be mid-30s if possible, right? The more you edge towards 50, it's tough because you have a lot of other smaller banks that are now thinking about things more so from the terms of like customer acquisition, go-to-market strategy, thinking about retention and not doing things the same way. One of my favorite books discusses the strategy between Blue Ocean and Red Ocean. Red Ocean is red because everybody's in the water doing the exact same thing, but somehow expecting a different result. There's a term for that, by the way. And in the blue ocean, you have those that are looking to do things differently. So there are a lot of banks now that are interested in, in technology and things that they can partner with to find ways to engage 
millennials and also Generation Z. Generation Z is a super smart and varied generation. I think the low age for Generation Z is eight or so, and the high age is like low 20. So that's like my daughter up until somebody who's in college or about to graduate. So very broad generation. So how do traditional banks that are accustomed to postcards and mailers and t-shirts and county fairs somehow find a way to integrate with a prospective customer that is on TikTok that would more so be interested in seeing somebody doing a dance versus being handed a t-shirt. So that's what I see, that the relationships are still going to be key. Banks still have the luxury of being a first mover because they have that density, that connectivity. But how do you transfer that relationship from the physical face-to-face interaction to something more digitized. True enough. And, and actually during this period of time, I think what happened was that if you had a digital acceleration strategy, you have to accelerate it. If you didn't have one, you need to hop to quickly and get one. But it also showed up the warts and all of what they were. So the clunky UX or the inefficient mid and back office, the additional security problems, the lack of any other offering besides a, a checking account, for example, or a loan. How do you feel these banks, these organizations who need to accelerate the digital, what, what are the characteristics? Look at the three, four or five characteristics of what a successful partnership with a tech firm looks like for them. I think when you take a step back, banks have to really view themselves the same way ventures do. Do you have a mission? Do you have a vision? Have you really put thought into what your brand is? Have you thought about your brand colors? Are you going to reinvent yourself for the modern day and time? Uh, a lot of these banks are built right now specifically for the old way of banking. You have the traditional trusted logo with an eagle or an oak tree or something that is foundational. But then you have these non-banks that are coming to the party that put a lot of thought and hundreds of thousands of dollars into colors and design and personas. And I feel banks are going to have to take a step back and revisit that. You can't retrofit technology and advertising to say, hey, I have all of these really modern ways to get people in. And then you get people to your website and they're like, oh, my God, this sucks. Because guess what? They have options and consumers nowadays are not afraid to use those options at all. So I think moving past that point, I think anything that can help banks on the acquisition side, I think ATMs will eventually become obsolete. So that's not a, a big strength anymore. I remember the days where banks saying, hey, we have more ATMs in the city than everyone else was a really big incentive for customers. Now people are like, yeah, we use Cash App. We're good. So I think customer acquisition is going to be key having effective methods to reach customers when you should reach customers, super important. I think another thing that Helene, you and I have talked about is really going to be that account opening piece. You got to have something to make it easy for people to sign up for an account. Like this whole faxing and emailing back and forth and use this password and this text message to put in this key. Generation Z and, and younger millennials, they're not going to play with that. It's just the second they see those blocks, it's too much friction for them to continue unless you just have an insane offer. And then also the mobile experience. You got to have something that you know that they can compare to in a favorable way. If you know the non-banks and the other incomes, the capital ones of the world, the ally financials of the world, they have great mobile experiences. And it's a bummer when you log into some of these bank mobile platforms. Can you guys not do that yet? Why is it taking you guys so long to do X, Y, and Z? 
And if Capital One or any of these other institutions decide, hey, we want to put out a big push to acquire customers, it's going to be pretty tough for a bank to stave them off for too much longer. You know, because right now, a problem that I've seen, Helene, in the world of banking and financials overall is that a lot of banks really feel as if relationship is their superpower, but they don't realize every bank feels relationship is their superpower. When the truth of it is, the majority of them are really more transactional. What can the customer do for me? And the customer's looking at the bank and saying, great, what can you do for me? Whereas with a relationship, you're willing to pay a little bit more because you want to have connectivity and density with those institutions. A lot of people don't think like that anymore. So I think it's a really smart thing for banks to just call a spade and go, hey guys, we really want to be about relationships, but we've become very transactional. What can we do to ease our way back to relationships? Because if you look at the way you're doing things and, and they're transactional, but you call it relationship driven, then what are you fixing? Keep doing things the way you're doing it. And, and if you think it's working, then God bless you. But if you see it's not working, you got to find a way to move back to relationship driven banking. And it's possible. It's definitely possible to do nowadays. I th recently, in other parts of, of the world, like in Canada and Australia, there, there's some of the incumbent banks that have been hiring literally thousands of relationship managers. And I was talking to someone the other day wondering, what is that? What is that's good for the for the moment? Because we're in the middle of the pandemic. But what's the implication of that for keeping them on uh, afterwards? And in the UK, there's an organization called One Banks, which is an agnostic kiosk. So if you're closing branches, you can actually just use the, the One Banks kiosks. They're launching in Scotland in December and do all your banking functions in, in the same way, because we're still having this conversation about will we be cardless before we're cashless and somebody still wants to go to a branch. But I take your point. I think the other thing that always strikes me, particularly for SMBs, is that we need to go beyond the banking services. They want more. They want a marketplace. They want better lending at the post point, for example. And I think that realization is it's not okay just to give me a checking or a current account, depending on where you are in the world. It needs to be frictionless, seamless, less expensive. We now have some of the neobanks and new challenger banks from the UK entering the US market, which was inevitable, and from Germany. And that a few years ago, we could see the writing on the wall. And as you said, there are alternatives. But the other thing about, and we'll say that the smaller, the newer banks that are funded from VCs and PE, like yourself, or from institutional funding is, can they get to scale quickly enough to survive? Or are we going to see in that marketplace some consolidation? Yeah, I think the consolidation is definitely on the way. You can clearly see the writing on the wall. Who can offer what services to customers? Who has the best brand? Who is the best go-to-market strategy? Very similarly with traditional banks, right? Every new customer that one bank acquires typically is taken from another bank. And, and that that's how banks grow. I take your customers, you take my customers. And if I can retain my customers more than you can retain yours, then I'll win in the end. I think in the neobank challenger bank space, it's going to be a very similar thing. But the, the what I'm noticing that is the big difference is that it's not really about features anymore. People are smarter now. And I think a lot of neobanks have also figured out that almost everybody can offer every feature. Very few of us have something that is just specifically unique to us. And if we do, it's only for four to five months before somebody else figures it out or until some other genius figures out, hey, you know what? A lot of neo banks want this feature. I'm going to spin up a third party company specifically to offer that to them. We've seen that happen in spades 
And it's so many neat companies that are forming right now specifically to serve our market. It's a land grab. Who can grab the most customers? Who can have the most engaged customers? Who can have the highest balances? Who can manage their burn effectively? Who can stay out of the, the compliance dungeon as best they can uh, as well? And you're exactly right. I think what will end up happening is that some of the larger fish will start to swallow up some of the smaller fish. Unless you have some very unique, brandable, affinity-based features that people don't mind sticking with you because of what you've developed around that brand. A few brands, non-banking related, that I just always had an affinity towards because I love the way they are in a very saturated market, but they still find a way to be different is like a Patagonia, as an example. Like when I think Patagonia, they've done such a good job. I think outdoors, I think mountains, I think bustling trees and, and the wind flowing through the bald head that I have. Yeah. Well. I was about to I was about to say hair, Helene, but you knew that was gonna be a lie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't see yeah, us. So, I can't see us. Yeah. Your listeners are gonna go look me up on LinkedIn and go, Yeah, he has no hair. And then I also even like Lululemon is always such it makes me laugh when I think about it. Like there, it's such a saturated market for that athleisure wear. And they just really come in and found like some small little nuanced things and have just taken it over. But what I also respect about them that they've done that is really smart with their affinity audience is they're not just stopping at athleisure. They're buying companies because they know their customer base is interested in fitness. They're opening up uh, a lot of different partnerships with companies that when you think about it, you think about a Lululemon and a Peloton. Like, all right, I, I could either see them working together or competing. And, and Lululemon is looking at a lot of different angles. But if another larger incumbent were to come into the market and say, we want to acquire all of Lululemon's customers. Good luck with that. Because there are a lot of more cost-effective brands out there than Lululemon, yet and still Lululemon is still growing. Also is a great example for the fintech arena as well. If you build something that is meant for your customer base, your specific audience, it almost doesn't matter who else is out there because you're going to have a very loyal and engaged base. I think you hit it on the head with having a customer base as well, because a lot of the new entrants, for example, on this side of the pond, had to build a customer base and they needed 400 million or whatever it was to actually build a customer base because they didn't have one. Mm -hmm. And I think that difference is when you have one, then you can create the specific products and services that they want because you can go out and research and speak to them and get their input to it. When you don't have one, and that was maybe three, four, five years ago, that's where we were. People were professing to have a community and then creating it. We've moved on quite quickly. And I don't feel like this is the end. I think another five years from now, this concept of the neobank or the model that it is will be different again. And I think a lot of the incumbents will be doing their digital offering outside of business as usual. If you have an old tech stack and you have to move it outside of business as usual, you have to. If you have a clunky front end and a poor integration and you've got to add the tech and you've got to partner with the fintech, you have to. And what do you think about the FDIC? And the noises that they're making about having a register in the US, similar to what we have with the FCA in the UK, if you're a fintech and you're on the FDIC list, as it were, it makes it easier for you to collaborate and partner with, particularly in our case, the smaller banks, but 
in banks in general. I agree. Super interesting times where we have neo banks and challenger banks here that have stepped it up and, and gotten charters and have done some neat things. And I think there was this phase where banks viewed fintechs as the enemy, but now there's still some old adopters or early adopters rather that kind of got it fairly early, like the cross rivers of the world. Like they went all in and they're killing it. And there's a few others out there too. But I think the FDIC is really taking a hard look because they recognize from a volume perspective and a regulation perspective that, hey, they got to get involved and follow what the consumers are wanting. And that's the part that's pretty cool, right? Because it would really suck if the FDIC made things more difficult when you can hear about the number of new customers that a lot of these larger neo banks are bringing on board. Like, why would you stop that? If, if customers say this is what we want, then do what you can to help those neo banks and challenger banks get what they need. And there's still a way for everyone to win, right? As, as long as you're willing to adopt the technology and take care of the customer. Another thing that you mentioned earlier, Helen, that I wanted to chat about as well is the, the speed of of innovation. And I feel traditional banks are in a position where they feel they may have time. And I think you and I recognize that even getting things done today, still late, you're already late to the game. So starting now helps buttress your bank from not being open to future innovation six months, 12 months, two years from now. Because what's going to happen, and I'm starting to see this too, there's certain technologies that were like super state of the art that are now very commonplace. An example I've given people before was, direct deposit. I remember when direct deposit like first came out and it was so funny because I remember people in my town, like not going to just let my money leave my control. Like they want to hold the paper check as if the paper check somehow magically held all of their money, but they did not trust money somehow magically flying from their company's bank account to their personal account. And then you also hit the mobile deposit. And I remember, I think when that first started, it would take four to six days. Like banks almost didn't even trust it. Right? <laughs> so you could clearly see all the details, but you had to wait four to six days to get your money. But now, because more people have adopted it and also because it's now the norm, now you can get your money the very next day. Which is meaning it's not earning interest for you somewhere else because no one's paying any interest anyway. But even if it's sitting at a reserve bank, it's not earning interest for the bank. But the consumer has driven that and they need to make money somewhere else. So the whole business model is being stressed in that regard. That's it. Yep. So the banks that adopt those things early will be in the best position later as opposed to the banks that get involved later, just not catching up because now they're going to have a much shorter curve to learn and become comfortable with those products uh, as well. At the trigger, as we said, that's causing people to, to see beyond just the banking services. You need to give something else to the customer, whether that's mm -hmm. loyalty, rewards, cash back, a, a marketplace to buy and sell things. Some, there's got to be something more. And we're actually thrusting this upon people in the middle of a very difficult time in the world. So there's, there's a whole heap of uncertainty. And we're also saying to people at the same time, you got to move quickly, which is why I think that, that I, I'm glad that there's more of a of an openness to partnering with the fintech community. I, I've clearly on this side of the world, we've had it for years now. And in 2011 to 2014, there may have been a bit of pushback. Big tech was looming like the elephant in the room that people were thinking more of. And the fintechs were, you know, puffing out their chests and we're going to eat your lunch and we hate you and all this. But actually come to the realization that to scale, they needed to partner. And you see this particularly in business lending because, yes, you might have a platform, but if you actually want to get any serious money out of the platform, you have to partner with a larger organization that wants to put some of the money on your platform 
and lend to companies they might not have been able to lend to under their own umbrella. And we're seeing much more of that now. And it's almost as if the large banks sat back and thought, we'll just wait for that to happen because it will happen eventually. Yeah, it's such a funny relationship. You're exactly right. It's like kids and their parents where the banks were the parents and, and the neo banks were, were the kids. And we got to our teenage years and we got our first job and we started feeling, like, I don't need mom and dad. I'm good <laughs> to go. I'm going to go out on the world and just take the world by storm. And then we realized later that we, we just happened to work better together. It's been so interesting to see the complexity of just fintech relationships. When people are really, if you're mission driven, it makes it easy, much easier at least to say, I'm doing this because this specific community needs help. But guess what? I mean, there are a lot of traditional financial institutions that were set up that way, too. Mm -hmm. Banks for Asian Americans, banks for Latin Americans. Mm -hmm. A lot of the problems that they run into is the scale, mm -hmm. right? Because they, they were built around physical locations and physical and uh, local relationships. More banks meant more bankers, right? And more branches also meant more bankers. And then each banker had their own separate web of relationships. And that used to be the name of the game back in the day. If you had more people, you had more relationships, you had more accounts. Yeah. Now, those face-to-face -face networks have been transitioned to social media, LinkedIn. And how easy is it to develop a relationship with a banker on a Facebook? Might be kind of tough, right? Certain things you can talk about and a lot of things you cannot. But people need help. So either the banks have to expedite that scale through working with technology partners or are going to be a ton of people out there, especially in a lot of the minority communities that are just going to continue to suffer. So it makes it a little bit more meaningful when you think about serving people in the long run is great. We can wait or we know those people need help now. So will we wait for that to happen or can we get out there and work together to help them faster? But you say that it's really resonating with me. We're seeing smaller banks spawning up there for the Islamic community, for example, that are Sharia compliant. We're seeing others that are for immigrants from Scandinavia. They're popping up everywhere because let's face it, America was made by immigrants, right? So somebody came from somewhere mm -hmm. and set up a bank somewhere. And in San Francisco, we saw a lot of it with Chinese community. As you were talking, I was thinking about Oakland. My sister lives there. there. And you, and you see a lot of, of from the 50s and the 60s, you know, how that all started to spin out the way you described it. But I also feel that how long can you wait until you can get to scale? If you have investors, at some point, they're going to look for a return. Are we joined up together, stronger together, as it were, at certain point to, to serve that community? And as I was thinking about the analogy we were talking about, going from being the I hate you so much child, growing up to the young adults and then more maturity, and you've come home from the university or college and you've got debt. And so you need to move back in with your parents, i.e. I'm going to move back in with the incumbent bank. If we carry that all the way through, when the incumbent bank becomes your grandparents or becomes your elderly parents and you wind up taking care of them, maybe we'll oh. see. I know, I know. Are you going to cast them aside or are you going to take care of them? I, I don't know, Helene, but what do the grandbabies look like? Oh. Are those third-party services that work with the grandparents? I don't know. I like where you're headed there. I think that should be a blog somewhere. You heard it here <laughs> first, folks. Where <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, if we carried it all the way through, it's like I say to my nephew, if you want my house and my jewelry, you better take care of me. You're, <laughs> you're right, but they will spawn out other things. And, and I think with that consolidation, I see that working both ways. I see some, and we've already seen examples of some banks, uh, especially some of the larger ones, trying to do their own version of neobanks and not working so well. Like I think, what's the example, Finn, about Chase, right? 
tried it, tons of cash behind it when it just didn't quite work because the experience that the users had from the digital version from the neobank versus the traditional bank was identical. And people were like, all right, what is this? But I can definitely see some banks really looking at things and going, what? You fit our target market. You're acquiring a base that we really care about. Maybe we should just acquire you. I was just going to say, just buy them. Just buy them. And, and then also vice versa. But maybe there's some neobanks who go, great, we're at this point and we feel you are doing such a great job. Mom and dad, why don't you guys go retire, take a break, let us take the wheel for a bit, acquire the bank. And But you still get to keep everybody, right? Because you still want the regulatory and compliance-based things that make it what it is. So I could see that also being an option too. I agree with you. I think we have to keep the customer in mind. And I think that's what gets lost so many times. Like the traditional banks have a lot of experience at taking care of customers and members. And I think that's what we can learn as neobanks and fintechs from them. But that's why working together is such a plus. You take that experience and history from the traditional banks and you marry that with the innovation and the modern tools and features from the fintechs. And it's a beautiful thing when it comes together. I agree with you. And I think I'm looking at it from the lens of having been involved in it over here for maybe, let's say it's really moved in the last five or six years. It's got very active in terms of the working together partnership thing coming out of the I hate you so much phase. And it was inevitable. I think that it was going to move to the States. We have a much more complicated regulatory system in the US. We only have the FCA, the PRA, and the Bank of England here, but it gets very multi-layered and people were accusing it of moving more slowly, although I think you have to appreciate the speed it has moved at. And I think Yelena McWilliams and Brian Brooks are also helping to, to move things along, although the state of New York might disagree with me at this point. And there's obviously some politics around that with the, the national charters, but it was coming. It was inevitable. It will move with speed. And I think it is critical particularly if you need to get to the tech and do it quickly and efficiently and at a good cost, that you may need to look to some of the fintechs that have done it in other parts of the world, like we have at Vacuum, because we've got a bit more experience in it as well. Mm -hmm. So we've had a head start, so to speak, in Europe and in, and in the UK and in parts of Asia. Someone said to me a few years ago, oh no, the US is not going to be looking at European fintechs because of regulation. And I remember looking at this woman thinking, what? Regulation is not a hurdle. It's just something on the list that you have to actually, it took World Remit three years to get regulated in every state in the US, but it wasn't like they looked at it and thought, we'll just skip that because there's a massive market out there, but we don't want to go through the regulations, not the hurdle. And now we can see that they're trying to help make it easier for these partnerships to happen, which I think should they should be applauded for this. People, as I say, sometimes think it's slow, but I think not. I agree. It, it's a process. We all have to recognize that it's a brand new world and there's a, a very traditional set of processes that these banks have built and set up for a number of years. And yeah, it's one of those things where we're entrepreneurs. We want to move fast. We want to be nimble. And their world just doesn't operate like that. So the cool thing that I think will happen is the older we get, the incumbents start to turn over. Even the people that make the rules and write the rules, they have a better lens and understanding of how those things work. And you don't believe me, go and try to show your grandparents how to use Zoom. I think you get a pretty good well, example. But that's our last <laughs> question on the podcast is if you had to explain what your new bank is to your grandmother, what would, how would you do it? That's everyone oh gets asked the question, right? I've given up. So I've just allowed my folks to think that I'm building a brick and mortar bank. I'm tired of explaining. Oh, no. I've tried to... <laughs> I, I, I've tried to explain what digital means and how it's built on top of, and they call, they call and tell their friends, oh yeah, Junior's building the bank. That's my nickname. And uh, I was like, all right, just, okay, uh, I'm going to find somebody's brick building so we can do like a ribbon cutting just to make my folks feel good. Oh, 
no. So we got the name change for us. We now know that you're called Junior and also that you're lying to your parents. I'm, I'm tired of trying to correct them. Like I, I've told them all the, the keywords, all the terms for fintech. They just don't understand the concept of Neo Bank, Challenger Bank versus traditional bank, which I get. We're talking about 55, 60 plus years of thinking about banking as a specific thing in a certain way. That's just like somebody coming to us right now saying, hey, I'm a digital bank, but I don't have an app. I'm an over-the-air neo bank. We're going to look at that person and go, man, are you crazy? How can you be over the air? But it's that new. That's the way it works. It's coming. We're going to lose cards. We're going to lose lots of things. And I would put it out to our listeners to get in touch with us so that we can give Donald an explanation that he can give to his parents and his grandparents what is a digital bank. Please. Okay? Yeah. I, I, we're going to do a contest. <laughs> give me the most layman terms possible <laughs> to explain what a neobank is without getting into the details about bank sponsors, interchange, and all that other good stuff. That's the ta- I The gauntlet has been thrown. I'm putting it out on the, <laughs> on the airwaves. Let's see what comes back. Donald, I can't believe that we've had such a wonderful conversation. I, I just love it. I love what you're doing. I love the fact that you saw the opportunity, the door slid open and you stepped in. You managed to find the Roots delegation for Griffin and that's going well. And congratulations on that. You've become a father. You've changed the name of the organization to be all encompassing for all groups of people. And you made it come to life in the shortest period of time. You understand the value in collaboration with the technologies that are out there and you embrace it as being a technology to collaborate. And we both know that our tier two, tier three, our community banks still have so much to do and are so worth stepping in. So it's been really incredibly the jaunt that we just had through all of what's happened in the roller coaster of banking in the last couple of years even has just, I've really enjoyed it. Much love for my community banks out there. Thank you guys are great hands with Helene and keep being open innovation. I'm excited for the future. And uh, yeah, man, let's keep this thing going. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm actually, I have tears in my eyes because I'm thinking about what you did. It's really, it's got me welling up. Donald Hawkins, thank you very much. And everyone have a look in at Boulevard. Thank you to everyone who's been listening and who joined us. We'll see you on our next podcast. Mm-hmm.